everyone. Welcome to the Sanctuary, uh, a safe space to speak from the heart. I'm your host, Israel, and my guest today is the publisher, editor and founder of The Green Line, writes on The Other Wave, a community builder, my friend, awesome human being, Anita Lee. Thanks for coming to the Sanctuary today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I I remember first asking the story of the green line and then I was in the thing in the in the train the other day and I saw it. So so that makes sense. Well, tell me about the origin story of the green line. Yeah, so that's a big, big question because I think it I get I'll give you the short Coles Notes version of it. So I've been in the industry for the past twenty two years. I'm thirty six years old now. I started off in Canadian journalism when I was fourteen years old. And so I like I grew up on Canadian media, especially legacy Canadian media. So I grew up watching CTV news on television. And I also read the Toronto star. Um, I always wanted to be a journalist since I was really young and a little girl, but as I entered the industry in my basically later, when I started working full-time in the industry, in my later teens and early twenties, I just noticed that the type of journalism that was being produced was not really accurately reflecting my lived experience as somebody who was a young woman of color growing up in Scarborough, which is um, like a suburb of Toronto that has almost 700,000 people, but it's very working class. There's lots of new immigrants and lots of people of color as well. So I started the Green Line because I think about, you know, Kid Anita and the type of news publication I would have wanted to read when I was growing up mm-hmm. that really reflected all the nuances of the community in which I grew up because Scarborough was very much stereotyped as a place that's full of crime and grime. So whenever you, whenever I told anybody I was from there, they would call it Scarlum or Scarberia just to kind of say like, oh, this place is so far out. It's like full of violence, like very dismissive. But my mm-hmm. experience of my hometown was that it was it was wonderful. Like I love growing up, growing up where I did. I think I, I'm so grateful for the land on which I was raised. Um, because I think it made me the person I am today, absolutely. And so that's like kind of the origin story of the Green Line in terms of like my motivation to start it in April 2022. It, it's really like the tagline is uh, the Green Line investigates the way we live to help young and other underserved Torontonians survive and thrive in a rapidly changing city. And I, I you know, I'm a young Torontonian, relatively speaking, and I also come from what I describe as an underserved community. Um, and that doesn't mean marginalized, but in Scarborough's case, we were quite under-resourced when I was growing up like in schools, in terms of like public infrastructure. So that's really just kind of why I was so motivated to create this. <clears throat> wow. And uh, okay, so 14, like what <laughs> What happened there? Like how did it all yeah. like, begin? Well, it didn't even start at 14. That's actually when I started getting paid to be a professional journalist. Huh. It actually started, like I've never, the funny thing Israel, is that I've never, ever, ever had any other job aside from journalism except for one stint as an optometry receptionist in my local mall Woodside Square when I was 14 years old, but I quit after a month because I suck so badly at it. But I actually started, I fell in love with journalism. I started writing short stories, basically about how cool my dad was about family members when I was like seven. And then I knew I wanted to be a broadcast journalist when I was about eight, because I saw people like Barbara Walters, I saw Connie Chung. Um, and then 14, actually, the way it started was um, I was in the summer co-op program, Uh, And I remember telling my co-op teacher, uh, Ella Huber, whose name I still remember today, and I still keep in touch with her, that I really want to be a journalist. And so she put me in a placement at CTV. And when you were like 16 years old and you're from Scarborough, 
it's it's mind blowing. Like I, it was like game changing for me. It was it was this broadcast station I grew up. My parents and I watch every night, and so that's kind of how it all started. And I was I did a co-ops um, kind of term there, and then they liked me enough to bring me back as a research and archives assistant. So I worked kind of on a contract basis and a, like kind of a part time basis after that. Yeah, that's cool. And yeah, and it's also I think to me the thing that really stands out in our stories that you knew so at such an early age uh-huh. what you wanted to be uh, usually you know when you're young you want to be like one or three or four or five things but well, you're just focused on this one so did you go to study that once uh, you got into university yeah so yeah and you're totally right by the way it's like my story is very atypical like very rarely does somebody know exactly what they want to do when they're like eight years old you know but it was just so it, you know when you just like it was just like never a question that i was going to do this forever and it, I never, and it was just like, there was no other option, <laughs> like no other option. It wasn't even like a, a thing in my mind. And so I eventually like, like, so I started working kind of like in the industry before I even went to journalism school. But at some point when I went to like, um, when I was an undergrad, I went to like University of Toronto for undergrad. I actually applied to Toronto Metropolitan University, which is Ryerson, formerly known as Ryerson University, which is one of the best journalism schools in the country. And I actually teach there now. But I decided to go to U of T because I wanted a more broad-based education. And then I was going to go on to do grad school in journalism. I ended up at uh, doing my master of journalism at Carleton University from t- 2009 to 2011, and that's in Ottawa. Um, and that's when I got more formal education and started really entering the industry full time after that. So, do you, I mean, like, you, you know, you start so early, see TV on all these things. Yeah. Did it help when you were in any way, or was it a detriment when you now start school? Like, did they teach all those things you learned or passion out of you? Yeah, I love that. That's such a good question, Israel, because I have so much comments on journalism education in this country. It's why I'm an educator, because I'm so passionate about changing the way the ways in which we teach journalism, or at least do more innovation-focused things. But I would say I got, like, I got a very strong foundation in the core kind of like foundational kind of best practices of journalism, Mm -hmm. Um, just understanding like how to construct the story, what makes a good story, like how to write cleanly, how to write quickly, you know, and basically journalism education in this country is very excellent. But I also felt that it was a bit behind at the time. So we were, it was already like fully, obviously the era of the internet, like 2009, 2011, we're already like five years at least into social media you know things were rapidly changing there was a decline of like newspaper revenue and all this stuff already starting to happen mm-hmm. and i didn't necessarily feel feel this did not necessarily feel as if um my schooling prepared me for that reality because we see what's happening to journalism today right like it's it's people say it's on the decline it's not it's just like having rapid changes and shifts and i don't know if i was necessarily prepared for this future um and so, yeah, I would say like there, there was good and bad to it. Mm. Yeah. About, I mean, in general, what was the experience like formal education? How did you feel the vibe and just, um, oh my gosh. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You want to know the vibe, right? <laughs> okay. We can get, we can get real here. Um, so at Carlton, I mean, I was one of like three people of color in the program. And then one of them actually dropped out in like the first semester and this other person who is like the other woman of color who ended up sticking around is a black woman. And we ended up going through the ropes together. We actually worked at the globe together. We worked at the star together. Her, she actually left the industry eventually because it was, it was racist. Like there's no other way to describe it because there was something, not, we're not even talking about microaggressions. Like 
both of us experienced like pretty explicit racism and we're not, I'm not that old, right? Like I'm 36 and this is Toronto. <laughs> like this is Toronto, right? Especially the most diverse city in the country, if not one of the most diverse cities in the world, right? So um, it was actually quite shocking for me because I kind of had this really idealistic sense of the industry, especially watching CTV, reading The Star. And then eventually when I went to some of these places, right, I worked at all the majors in broadcast and print, like most of them, not all of them, but most of the majors, um, I was kind of disappointed. And a lot of like the problems around equity and journalism in the industry actually started in at the J school level because it's a pipeline for those those institutions, of course, right? So mm. that was definitely, I'm not going to mince words about it. And I've also like, I actually work with Carlton and I work with TMU now. So people there know my grievances and I'm kind of a, I'm not kind of, I'm very much a solutions oriented person. So I'm not just a complainer. So for me, if I'm going to talk about this and they see identified problems to that we need to address, I'm going to go and be part of that change and that solution. So that's kind of what I've gone and done. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was like a lot of hits. There's like hit and miss for sure, basically. Mm. And then do you, while you were schooling, did you still do any work? And then once you were done with school, do you just jump straight back into work? Yeah. So that was like, I, that's the thing about me. I was like always, I was one of those very achievement oriented people. I'm very, I'm actually quite different, very different than I was back then when I first started my career. Um, But that's exactly how it was. Right. So I was like, you know, doing all the things I could in school, like either taking part-time jobs or doing freelance gigs and then also being head of my campus paper, you know, that typical kind of typical kind of trajectory. And then when, after my master's, I jumped straight into the globe. So I was one of the, um, a few students, um, who got a summer internship at the Globe and Mail. I did well there and then ended up getting the year long reporting internship at the Toronto Star. So my internship at the Globe was editing. And then that from there, I never stopped being full time. Like the only time I had a gap in employment was when I, I had my first layoff in like, like 2017. Like, but aside from that, I had like continuous full time employment from the moment I graduated. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, what are some of, I guess, what are some of the things that you took from these places you walked that led to Greenlight? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a really good question. So, I mean, everything. Like, the Greenlight is really, like, informed from two perspectives. It was, like, how I, I was kind of a little bit disillusioned with the way Canadian journalism or establishment Canadian journalism was done, right? I didn't feel like it was equitable enough. I didn't feel like it reflected the nuances of a lot of these underserved communities, um, I didn't think it represented people like me and the people I grew up with. Right. So that was like one element, but then on the other element of it, um, I also like, um, from the, yeah, like not just the practice side, it was also like the, it, sorry, it was not just like the representation side, right. Of like my identity and the way I grew up, it was also the practice of journalism. Right. So I wanted to kind of like, I wanted to do more innovative focused things. I wanted to do things that were more digital first, things that were looking ahead of the curve rather than trying to play catch up. So I'm actually like now journalism innovator in residence at Toronto Metropolitan University. I'm known for my journalism innovation work for that reason. So all of that kind of helped inform the green line, like both my experiences and disappointments. And also like, you know, like I also took the good with the bad as well. Like I took the good and then also tried to address the bad. 
and then try to merge that into the green line. So I'd actually say the green line is like very rigorous in terms of like quality of journalism. Like I've taken a lot from my legacy kind of Canadian media experience, plus my journalism school education and been like, okay, like fact checking, copy editing, like really robust reporting practices and things like that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we we've done things where we like tailor journalism to social media. And so like we have like, like we invented a new format. We also do a lot of audience engagement and community engagement where we consult the communities that we report on about the stories they care about. So it's less of a top down kind of journalism approach where there's like a group of editors deciding the days, the the day stories. And it's more like an bottom-up approach where it's really the community members kind of saying like this is what we care about so this is what we want to know because obviously they know better than us um in terms of like to in terms of like identifying priorities for reporting Mm. um and so and then also just like in terms of a focus on design a focus on greater authenticity through like just having like a more like I, I when I mean authenticity I mean like a voice that is like really relatable to people like it's not just like this very like very rigid staid way of reporting it's like very much like this is who we are as a team these are our values we're really transparently showing you mm. the, the way we like how we walk the walk and everything and and it's not just kind of like this remove kind of relationship with the public if that makes sense mm. so that's kind of what I'm doing and um I mean so I mentioned earlier when, when I at the top of the conversation that I now know what the green line is, but mm-hmm. you had this idea of starting this um, publication and how did you come up with that name? And mm-hmm. when was like, okay, this is what the name of the um, publication is going to be. Yeah. So I started off, so I mentioned that I launched the green line in April, 2022, but I started laying the groundwork for developing the publication in like, around the beginning of the pandemic. So like around like spring, summer of 2020, basically. And at the Mm. time it was called Tio Mag, which is a terrible name. Um, But at the time, like I was taking inspiration from New York Magazine because I knew I wanted to do long form pieces that were really like culturally relevant with some kind of tongue in cheek voice. And New York Magazine was something that I really looked to because I always love their journalism and I've written for them before. So that was kind of the working title. And then after I consulted, like, so what I did was like, I could, I determined who my target audiences were. And then I consulted people who I felt were representative of those representative of those audiences. And then I basically asked them a bunch of questions about like the structure of like the, the website, the design, and also the name. So Teal Mag was quickly eliminated. And then one of my friends, Stefan Hostetter, shout out to Stefan, came up with the green line and all of us really liked it. And the big reason is because I'm born and raised in Toronto, right? So when I was growing up in Scarborough, I took the green line very often because it's actually a, a, the colloquial term or slang term for a, a subway line called the Bloor line. So for those of you who are not familiar, familiar with Toronto, there's like two major lines. There's also like a couple other lines that are tinier, but two major lines in the city, right? There's the young line, which is yellow and it, that goes north and south. And then there's like the east west line, which is the Bloor line, also known as the green line. So you'll hear people, especially people from, I mean, I knew a lot of people in Scarborough growing up who called it the Green Line. And I often had to take the bus from McCown and Finch, 129 bus, all the way to the RT, and then take the RT to Kennedy. RT is our uh, former, it's closed down now, it's our, our rapid transit line in Scarborough. And then from Kennedy took it, which is the Green Line, took it all the way downtown to like work and also go to school and all that stuff and also hang out with friends. So that's the origin behind the Green Line. And the last thing I'll say about that is that it was really meant to be the green lines, a publication for the every person, right? It's really like 
the reason why I didn't really explain the term is like, if you know, you know. And so that mm. means like, you're kind of an insider, you know, like you're somebody who like uses transit. You might not, you're not necessarily somebody who's like driving around the city. You're somebody who's like really connected or tries to connect with the city. Mm, 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 mm. And um, something that the Green Line does is like the support. How did you come up with that support structure? Um, what do you mean by the support structure? Um, yeah. Like the different, I guess, levels for subscription. Mm. I mean, okay, yeah. So we, this is still in its early stages, so I can speak briefly to it. But mm-hmm. we, like I said, we only launched last April, right? And so it's been kind of a relatively methodical or slowish process of building up the company. And so I do have like revenue, like, um, or membership tiers rather is how, how I describe it. Um, we have three membership tiers that correspond to different stops on the green line, right? So we have like Kennedy membership, which is the eastmost stop. Um, and that's like our entry level membership for like students and budget conscious Torontonians. Then we have the lower membership, which is more in the center. And that's for the mid-level membership. That's like 10 bucks a month. That is basically for young professionals and other working Torontonians who can spare a little of extra cash. And then the most expensive membership is Kipling, which is the most like westernmost stop on the green line. And that's for like Torontonians who can afford to share their wealth and spread the love basically. So we were able to, the reason why we had those tiers was because we wanted one that was like really accessible, one that was like, um, just because we serve underserved communities, but also young people who are are Mm. often like not really wealthy. Right. And then there's like the middle tier just to be, you know, it's like broadly accessible. And then the ones we also want to give an opportunity for people who have like more means to be, be able to support like our, not only our business, but also potentially even get memberships for like when they buy a higher level membership, they're offsetting the cost for like a lower level member is the point. Mm. Right. So we're trying to be like, have multiple touch points to make it as accessible as possible. And that's like the idea behind it. But the last thing, last thing I'll say about that is we still are really developing our membership program. So it's very early days. Mm. No, yeah. I love that. Cause um, I mean, there's a, I guess, blog that I follow and I love the structure where, but it isn't just about the membership. It's like um, this, you know, it's more like artistic approach to it where they have people actually paying for, to support the thing itself. So it's not like um, I'm I'm paying for uh, an issue or whatever, but I'm paying because the service or the art or in this case the publication um the green line is something that i feel more people should see so it's like they're supporting it because of that so whenever i look at the higher tiers for subscription that's kind of what i think it is it's like exactly okay i believe so much in what the message behind these projects is and i'm putting my you know literally money where my mouth is type of thing so i love that okay and um um Oh, you, can I say something really quick as yeah. well? I just want to say, like, you totally nailed it because, like, um, you know, like, you know how, like, typical newspapers have, like, a subscription model where you just pay to access a series of articles, like, 10 articles for free or something, and then you have to pay after, like, a monthly rate? That's not the same. That's more transactional. You're totally right that the green line is, like, a vibe. It's almost like you're buying into, like, um, like to be part of a community of like-minded people who care about the city and want to make change. So that's like the difference. And you're totally like nailing that. And that's why I love community-based publications because it's possible for you to do that if you have a clear mission for that your members can kind of join and be part of. 
Mm. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, apart from writing, you also yeah. do speaking. When, yes. how did that happen? And how do you prepare to speak? Because uh, do you still have, uh, whenever I'm asked to speak, like, till I'm off the stage, I'm like, oh my God, just get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always looking at people that speak. Like, what, what tips do you have to share? Oh yeah. So I speak so much. Like I speak, if you average it out, it's probably like at least once a week. And like, just to give the audience a sense of like my like schedule or speaking schedule, I was in like three different American cities across like two and a half weeks um, earlier this month, just kind of traveling and speaking about like the green line in particular. Um, So in terms of tips, like people would be like, people who don't know me or only knew me recently, um, are really surprised to find that I used to be extremely anxious public speaker, like to the point where I'd like choke on my words or like, I'd like breathe, like I just like be breathing heavily. I'd be so nervous. Like you could probably see me shake a little bit. And now it's like nothing for me. Like, it's really like, it's one of the easiest things for me to do is like public speaking for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I would say like the very first thing is like, and that's not even a brag because like I, it's like anyone can get to the point that I've gotten to just through sheer practice. And I know that's Mm -hmm. not a tip per se, but sometimes I think people put so much pressure on themselves to be like, okay, next month I have to be like a crazy good speaker uh, (laughs) and go from like zero to a hundred. And I'm like, guys, like not really like start off, like start off with like lower level opportunities, like things like the way I started was like, okay, like my school would have a student panel. And they'd be like, Anita, do you want to speak on the student panel? I'll be like, okay, sure. Like, why don't I try that out? And it's like lower stakes. You have like a lot of friends and supporters in the audience. So it's like, even if you mess up, it's not a big deal. And then slowly you kind of take more and more higher level things. And for me, every time I did something like, it was like kind of like um, a goalpost that I was meeting, like a bigger kind of, like I spoke at the Monk Center recently. I spoke on CPAC, like there was like, or spoke on the agenda. Every time I kind of had like a higher level thing, I'd like, and I'd be nervous for something else that came up. I'd be like, Anita, remember that time you were on the agenda and you killed it? Or remember the time you did that? And it just looks immediately reassuring. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say, another tip I would say is like a lot of people speak according to talking points. You really don't want to do that. Like the thing is like the best speakers are always the ones who speak kind of in the way off the cuff. And that requires a level, a deep level of expertise. So to me, being a good speaker is just being somebody who's actually also a good expert who's really knowledgeable and also is really passionate about sharing information. Mm. So that's like the second thing, right? Don't even think about the words or the construction. It's really about, do I know my stuff? If you know, I know my stuff, then can I, how can, how, how can I communicate this clearly in an entertaining fashion? Mm. Which leads me to my third tip, which is I actually think it's really good to kind of set yourself apart from other speakers, not to kind of indicate that you're better than other people, but it's just like, you know, sometimes like people are always um, like everything and everyone is trying to compete for people's attention and people have shorter attention spans these days. So you have to make sure that when you like show up in a space where you're speaking, that it has to be engaging pretty immediately. So Mm. try something that's just like, not the generic, like, Oh, hello. My name is like Israel. Hello. My name is Anita. Maybe ask a, a question, like maybe ask something that's provocative, maybe make a provocative statement and then kind of open from there. And that to me is like, will always like help grab the attention of your viewers a lot better. Mm, mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good to know. Thanks. Um, <laughs> you also do some consulting and training. Talk a bit more about that. Yeah. So, well, what do you want to know specifically? Just like, what does it involve? What things do you, I, I guess, what projects are you passionate about when it comes to working? Cause personally, I mean, there are things I do cause 
cut some money. And then there are things that I do, like, even if they were not paying me, I'd do it anyway. So I'm yeah. curious, like, when it comes to consulting or training, how do you decide what you work on, who you work with? Yeah, so I'm really fortunate in that. So you mentioned the other wave. So I, I in addition to running the Green Line, which is my hyper-local independent solutions-driven um, community-led outlet, I also run a B2B newsletter called The Other Wave. And it's all about journalism innovation and challenging the status quo in media, but especially in Canadian media, right? Mm. So that is actually the reason why I mentioned the newsletter is because it's basically one and the same with my consulting company. So the other wave is consulting company, but the newsletter is really like the pipeline where like I get most of my opportunities and prospective clients. So mm. I write a lot about like my own insights in the industry, uh, in education and consulting through my publishing work at the green line. Mm -hmm. And then um, people often come to me. Like I rarely have ever, like there's probably one time I applied to a consulting opportunity and responded to an RFP. But most of the time it's because people know my reputation and know my work through the other wave, right? So then they, they also know what kind of person I am because the way I write in the other wave is not just pure, like just talking about my professional side. I also talk a lot about my values and my, my own experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's my long way of saying that like a lot of my consulting projects are in line with what I want to do because I talk about what I want to do and what I do already, right? So really I focus on audience engagement. Um, I would say audience engagement, uh, diversity, monetization, especially around reader revenue and innovation. I've also, so those are the ones that I mostly like focus on around, especially around engagement um, because that's my core expertise, but I've also done things like help a, a company redo restructure and reorganize because they wanted to introduce a chief content officer. So they were trying to figure out like, kind of like the lines of like kind of reporting and channels of communication. Um, I've also consulted on uh, community driven best practices in journalism. And in fact, I've consulted the CBC on that. So it really depends. Like for me, I rarely ever say yes to things that I'm not really passionate about. Um, of course, there's things that everyone does to pay the bills, but I always try to like work with, with a good mix of like corporations, but uh, es but especially like more independent um, outlets, because that's where my true passion lies. Like I really mm. believe in the power of small independent journalism outlets to fill in gaps in coverage and then support our democracy. So to mm. me, I always like make myself a bit more affordable for those folks. And then I pay my bills through the the, the bigger kind of institutions. But I, mm. I like all sorts of work. It also really helps with like just building your network as well. So I think I'm pretty lucky in that regard. Mm. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the process. But before we talk about that, you mentioned you have this position in the school family called Ryerson. What is it called? And what's a typical day like when you're working there? Okay. So yeah. So Ryerson is what Toronto Metropolitan University is now called. They changed the name for a good reason because um, Ryerson is actually somebody who supported residential schools. Um, and so there's like a whole bunch of, I don't know if you guys, I don't know if the viewers are familiar with that, but you guys should definitely take a look at that and look it up. Um, but I'm the journalism innovator in residence at TMU. And then I used to also just was a, like a regular instructor there. Um, I specifically focus on digital reporting and journalism innovation. And I taught both the undergrad and master's levels. So it's not really like, there's no typical day. Like the way I describe my career is like, it, there's a new term for my career called portfolio career. So it's like, think of like, it's not freelance either. Like people have been like, is she a freelancer? It's like, definitely not. It's much more stable than that. So picture a pie chart in your mind and then picture like three different slices of pie. So like the way my pie works is like 
the green line takes about two thirds of the pie. Then the remaining third gets split in half. And that's like half is for consulting and the other half is for education. So for me, like I, everything also informs each other, by the way, because a lot of what I teach and I consult on is informed by my journalism and then vice versa. Like everything's kind of very holistic. So what I'm trying to say is that there is no typical day, right? Like I have right now what I'm doing as journalism innovator in residence is I'm giving a series of workshops on entrepreneurship um, to teach young people how to start their own side hustles or elevate and level up their side hustles if they want to make it a big main, their main gig. Um, and then also, uh, we, I also am teaching a series of engagement focused workshops, like on community and audience engagement. Mm -hmm. So, so I go into school, like, um, I won't get into details cause that's not particularly interesting for your yeah. audience, but like, it's really like I go to class, um, I prepare materials, um, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions um, with some of the, the participants in the workshop, especially the ones who are in the entrepreneurship workshop as they build out their company. Um, and that's kind of it. Like it's not, it's very, I have a very independent kind of like, I, I basically dictate my own schedule basically. Mm. Um, and my priority is always the green line. So the education work is, it's not like a day where I go in a report to anybody. I'm, I'm in my own boss in every context. Of course, there's people I work with and have to be accountable to do. Uh, in terms of my consulting clients and, you know, obviously my colleagues at the school, but like, it's very much like self-directed. Okay. So yeah. let's get into process. I mean, you've been doing these things since you were, you know, that high. Um, when it comes to writing, when it comes to speaking and, and training, how do you prepare for it? Um, what, what does the process look like for the other way for the green line? I mean, that's a big question. Cause you asked me about writing, speaking and training. Yeah. So like what, Okay, let's like, start with writing. Yeah. Okay, with writing? Okay. So, man. Okay, so I won't talk about... So the green line is like a bigger thing because I'm a publisher, right? Like I'm both a publisher and editor-in-chief. So I run the business side of the company as well as the editorial side. Mm -hmm. But at some point, I want to focus on the business side and bring on somebody to run the editorial side. So I won't necessarily get into process for the green line because... There are far too many things that we do. Like we do long form stuff. We've done documentaries. We've done short form stories tailored to social. We've done like data interactives. And there's a different process for all of those things basically. But it's mm -hmm. pretty standard like filing a draft, fi like going through the edit process, filing a final draft, making it go through social, uh, like obviously copying and fact checking as well, stuff mm -hmm. like that. So that's kind of like the, the high level overview. Um, in terms of the other wave, I am. it's much more... Like I'm much more intimately involved in every element, obviously, because I'm just like running it on my own. Mm. The only thing that I have for support on the other wave is I have a social media assistant or coordinator who basically develop like so, develop social posts to promote the newsletters in the other wave. But typically, I I started off the other wave. I think I launched it in 2020, um, and I started off as like a bi monthly newsletter. So every two weeks, basically, I would publish like an addition. And then over time, I kind of reduced that to once a month because as the green line scaled up, I had to like reprioritize things. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I often do is like, maybe I have this document called the other wave, like, I think it's the other wave ideas or something. And it's just like a running list of all my thoughts about the industry, any sort of insights that I have. So I'm somebody who's always constantly writing side notes to myself to being like, Oh, this would be a great idea. This would be a great idea. And then I add it to the document. And then maybe like a week or two before I'm like, okay, what do I feel like writing about? And then, then I start putting it together. I put the newsletter together. I also have two sections. I used to have two sections. It's now consultant consolidated into one, which is basically like cool stuff 
I like, as well as like are in my community, which are just things happening in the industry. Um, and also just things that I'm personally reading outside of journalism or personally consuming outside of journalism. So that's kind of the process for that. Um, I don't know if you want me to talk about speaking and training, but that's like Please pretty do. long. Okay, gosh. There's a lot of pro- like processes pretty involved, but I'll give a shorter version of those. Speaking, I'm going to be straight up with you and say that I actually don't really prepare. I do not recommend this. I do not recommend this. Um, and also like to all of those people who book me as speakers, uh, as a speaker, please do not <laughs> see this as me being irresponsible. I'm just somebody who like speaks on the same subject so often. Um, and not the same thing. It's just like, I have a really good understanding of my industry. I'm, I have a bird's eye view and because I'm independent, I'm connected to like all sorts of ecosystems, like legacy, emerging unions, education, like all sorts. So for me, like you can ask me any question right now and I'd probably be able to give you a, a pretty good answer. So that's why sometimes I do prepare if it's like something that's really intense or a specific pro- pro- presentation. Um, then I kind of have, what I do is I kind of like the night before, think through, okay, like these are the questions generally the scope of like the, the, the conversation, what are the main bullet points that I want to speak to? And then I just jot those down. I never write out my answers. Like I like to be as organic and, and fluid as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's, and then I just go up and then I ground myself. I just kind of like, if I, if I feel any sort of nerves, which is usually like not a lot, I'll just like breathe and then center myself, maybe hold something cold just to kind of be really present and then just go up. And then I just kind of give myself words of affirmation because I'm like, yeah, you got this. Like, it's not going to be a problem. And that really works quite well. And I, like I said to everybody who's like newer in speaking, I might sound kind of very cavalier about it, but it just, just, it honestly gets so much easier over time that eventually it'll be like an old hat. Mm. Then in terms of like training and like, not like consulting, I'll describe it. It's really different because I don't do a lot of trainings. Like I do like consulting, which is on strategy. So what I often do is like people approach me, I offer free 15 minute consultations, which you can go like book via my website, anitalee.me. And then people tell me about the problem. And then I say, okay, can you like send me like a kind of overarching kind of scope of work? And then we drop, I drop a contract based on, and then identify certain like goals that the client has. Um, and then what the deliverables will be, we establish a timeline. I set it check-in meetings with them. And then I start like, I, I usually often do like, an audit of their existing kind of strategy and documentation. Also, I do a lot of stakeholder interviews to figure out like what, like what kind of things I should know about their company and their staff um, to give me some context before I start devising strategy, right. Mm -hmm. And giving advice. And then that's, and then at, at the end of the process, I often write like some sort of report or provide some sort of deliverable to the client. And that's usually how it works. Wow. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I know oh, you mentioned you have like teams of people that support you with the green line. But I think mm-hmm. when you mentioned that bed's eye view, you are kind of up there with a bed's eye view on all these things you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still have to have a life, right? Outside work. How do you, I guess, manage both? Yeah, I'm so glad you're asking me that because the funniest thing is I often like... Sometimes, very occasionally, people come up to me and they're like, uh, like, hope you're taking care of yourself, Anita, <laughs> or like, don't work so hard. And I always find it kind of funny because like, I'm definitely, and I told you this in the, our pre-interview, I'm definitely a life overwork person. And I always, always say this, if I did not prioritize my life and being centered and a grounded person, I would not be nearly as successful as I am. 
And some people think that's weird because they all often think like, oh, don't you have to work yourself to the bone to get to this point, right? It's not true at all. Like you're actually far less effective when you're like chaotic or you're like ungrounded or you're stressed. You are not as good with not only your family and your loved ones and your friends, but you're also bad with your staff. And so if people, if you're not like vibing with your staff and there isn't a flow at your organization, you're just not going to be as effective overall as a company. Mm. So for me, like it's really important for me to have really good mental health where I take care of myself. I get good enough sleep. I exercise. I eat well. I spend time and I focus on my hobbies. I just played piano earlier just for like an hour, just for fun. Um, I have piano lessons. I do French language lessons for fun um, because I think it's so important to have that kind of centered kind of calm that's so essential for being an entrepreneur and a leader because it's just like there's a lot of running moving parts there's a lot of like ups and downs there's a lot of unpredictability like you cannot be effective if you're not taking care of yourself first so that's kind of like what I do to like manage things I actually lean more into my hobbies lean more into like hanging out with my friends I have clear boundaries where I I try really hard although I don't always succeed, I must admit, to not work on the weekends and not work in the evenings, right? I do try to have really strong boundaries. Like, of course, inevitably, things sometimes things bleed over, but you want to make sure that it doesn't happen so often that you it starts to lead to burnout where you're not present with the people that you love the most. Or else, what, what's the point of even doing something like this, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't, <laughs> you, you don't want to do all these things for nothing and then, you know, don't have time for yourself, loved ones, family, all that. So yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to find that balance. Okay, so what are some things in the pipeline for you? It always seems like you always have things happening. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I have a lot of uh, quite a few th- exciting things happening. So uh, for those of you guys who are in Toronto, the Green Line is hosting an event on Saturday, November twenty fifth, from like seven p.m. to late, and it's really exciting because it's our first ever comedy event. So we're doing an action journey, which is like one of our an action journey is basically a four-step process that the Green Line has where we have like an explainer, we publish an explainer, we publish a feature story, and then we pub- we host an event and then we have a solutions article. And it always tackles like one systemic problem in the city. In this case, the comedy action journey is focused on like addressing barriers to uh, comedians and other like comic artists, like comedian artists in the city, and then try to figure out solutions. Because after the pandemic, there was they were hurting. Like any sort of live events or live entertainers were like really struggling. Mm. So we decided to every time we tackle a systemic problem, of course people are just going to come and gather to, to like like be bummed out, right? There always has to be a joyful component to it. So we wanted to host. So we're hosting a comedy show, which is like a roast battle. And the headliner is Andrew Fung from Kim's Convenience, which is that really, but uh, really popular CBC show that's um, also on Netflix. So that's like one event that I encourage you guys to come out to. It's a ticketed event. Tickets are selling out fast. So I totally encourage you guys to get that. Um, in terms of upcoming stuff, um, I'll tell you guys something that I'm doing for con- consulting. I'm consulting Indigenous, which is like the one of the um, one of the only Indigenous-led publications in the world, and it's based out in Vancouver. So I'm friends with the team as well, especially Eden Finday, the publisher. And so I'm consulting them on their social and audience engagement strategy. So that's like really meaningful work to me because it almost feels like a form of like. Um, it's form of recon- it's my way of contributing to reconciliation as a journalist because there's been a lot of harms, colonial harms that have been perpetuated through media, mm. right? And then in education work, I'm really excited about the workshops I have as journalism innovator in residence around entrepreneurship. Like I think 
young people are so eager for an alternative pathway to the standard kind of path to success that isn't just like going to a big name place and working there for like decades. They really want to do their own thing. A lot of them are really excited like about by my portfolio career that you can actually do something like I do and make a decent living and put food on the table and, and thrive and be happy. And so I'm really excited about just spreading, like evangelizing basically about my pathway because it's pretty new and not common, but I just, I'm, I'm really happy in what I do. And I just want to be able to tell as many people as possible, like mm. that anyone can really do it. Yeah. I mean, one, I guess, you know, you mentioned social media earlier on, you have someone that walks with it, uh, yeah. walks with your social media, but one phrase that comes up when it comes to creating, writing, making content in, in general, is like this passion economy. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Like yeah. just the freeze itself. Passion economy. Oh, mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I know so, like, so I'm kind of in between. So I'm, I'm actually quite a pragmatic person, like, but I'm also an idealist, right? So I'm not somebody who clearly in journalism, like you go, don't go into journalism for money, right? Like you do it because you really care about telling stories and you really care about democracy or whatever reason that you get into journalism. Um, so I, but I'm also somebody who understands the value of like money and just survival. Like I, that's like, it'd be silly to say that's not important, especially with so many people struggling, especially after the pandemic, right? It's like, which laid bare so many in, in, inequities. So I would say like passion economy to me, some people have c- criticized it for being frivolous. Like, oh, you pursue your passion, like eye roll or whatever. But I don't really see it that way. I see it as like, it's very, I actually prioritize, I would say values economy. So I was literally just having this conversation with one of my fellows who was asking me for advice. And she's like, oh, she's like, oh, but I really am skeptical of like, follow your heart. And I'm like, girl, I'm not just telling you to follow your heart with like no plan. I'm telling you to lead with your values, right? Which means like you have like most like if you want a successful career, it's like a combination of what you're good at, what you like to do. um, And I think it's like what you're good at, what you like to do. And if you can make money from it, right? So it's like really like finding the center of all that. And and for me, like it's values that really give fulfillment. It's not just like, I actually love, for example, like film. And I used to do film criticism. But if I did that for the rest of my life, I would go insane because it would just ruin something that I love so much, which is like just watching movies for fun. So for me, it's actually like the work that I do with the Green Line is perfect because it's not passion per se it's like values combined with passion and combined with like something really pragmatic where i can actually make this into a viable business and that's kind of how i would like that's my answer to your question hopefully that makes sense right yeah okay and um you know it started with scarborough um, and there's that beautiful film called scarborough i think and yeah um one thing that's pulled from this conversation is the word community so i'm curious what does community mean to you and why is it important to you? So I'll start by saying that community is a word that's really been co-opted and corporatized in a lot of ways. And people Mm. kind of use it in marketing language to use just like a group of people who are together. But for me, like community is really important in that it's like you, it's like, like a group of people who joyfully engage with each other based on shared interests. And oftentimes people often say, like, my community of, like, you can have it, like, I'm part of, like, the Chinese-Canadian community in Toronto. 
But to me, sometimes like I don't even like to use community when it comes to like, for example, race or identity, because like it's it's something that I identify with, but it's not necessarily that I have like, oh, I'm going to hang out with my Chinese Canadian community, right? It's usually like my family, which happens to be Cantonese. And my, like, I don't know, like maybe I have a group of friends that where we like have shared interests around Asian cultural, like things like food and art, but it's not like, oh, you're Chinese and I'm Chinese. So we're like a community, like a community per se. Like, I think that's used. And this is a complex kind of nuanced thing that I'm trying to say where mm-hmm. it's like, it's not just like, like, I think a community has to have that element of like, joyfully committing to be together around a shared interest which is why I think communities are much more powerful when it's about like oh I really care about the same thing you do and I want to work towards something or we like love engaging with each other on this kind of shared interest or topic Uh, hopefully that makes sense yeah basically to you it has to be active yeah it has to be active it's not just like I think you can't like I would never criticize anybody for saying like yeah I'm part of like I know the Jamaican Toronto community or like the the Hong Kong community because I do think that those are communities but they're a lot more amorphous and there could be many communities within those communities as well right because mm-hmm. like obviously there's no monolith like Chinese people there's so many different types as well like different like linguistic types and stuff in terms of language so that's why that's the just the nuance that I'm trying to parse that's all. Mm. Okay. No, that's cool. I mean, it's always great to chat with you and I know you have so many things on the go. Uh, but I can't let you go without going with this question. What would little Anita think of Anita now? Uh, I love that question. I think she thinks she was dope. <laughs> like honestly, like <laughs> I love that I love your reaction, Israel. You're like, yeah. Um, I, I honestly would. Like I feel and I did a lot of I've worked on myself a lot. Um, and to get to this point in my life, and I don't even mean like work wise, like work professionally. I just mean like worked on myself spiritually, um, and just like maturity wise. And so I think I'm the person that kid Anita always wanted to be, which is such a like amazing thing to say out loud, because I don't think I was like five years ago, even 10 years ago, even, Mm. um, I think it took a lot of me really listening to my inner voice. Inner, sorry, it took me really listening to my inner voice and trusting it and not being afraid of naysayers and people who just like, you know, people who just want to knock other people down, right? Because sometimes that happens. It's just like really listening to that inner voice, finding people who align with that inner voice, supporters who really support me unconditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so I think she thinks she was like powerful and cool and deeply compassionate and honest um and somebody she would proud to be proud to be basically wow. yeah. so i need a lead the um <laughs> idealistic prog- uh, the I- pragmatic idealist yes <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for coming to the sanctuary today and sharing so much about yourself thanks so much israel this was really fun um and yeah i'd love to be back sometime again mm-hmm.